ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to take this moment to say thank you for listening to the Real Rescue Podcast. It means a lot to me that you enjoy these stories as much as I do. Since the start of this podcast, we've had a lot of support from all over the world. It has been amazing. Now, we have companies joining our team that also want to say thank you for all that you are doing out there standing the watch. These companies are offering discounts on their products as a way to support the rescue community and those tuning into the Real Rescue Podcast. Just go to therealrescue.com, click on Sponsors, and see these incredible offers for yourself. This episode of the Real Rescue Podcast is brought to you by Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider. Access. Because when lives are at stake and conditions are challenging, Clear communication is of the utmost importance. SR3 Rescue Concepts, because you don't know what you don't know. And Versalips, to be your best, you need to squat your best. Breeze Eastern, they dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. The Axness PNG Wireless ICS System can bring cutting-edge wireless intercommunication system technology to any aircraft. The PNG system can be fully integrated into an existing ICS system or can be carried on and off as a mobile base station. They can go anywhere, at any time, on any aircraft. Plus, with the strongest and most robust waterproof handheld on the market, this system can take a hit and keep working. Their wireless intercom systems are designed to enhance situational awareness through improved communication capability. This system brings superior noise canceling technology to eliminate rotor wash and engine noise from your ICS. The Axness PNG wireless system is currently deployed in more than 1,800 public safety, air ambulance, and search and rescue aircraft worldwide. I have personally used the Axness system in four different countries and on five different airframes. It is awesome. If you want more information, Contact them today at axnes.com. That's A-X-N-E-S.com. You just make sure you tell them Quinny sent me. SR3 Rescue Concepts is a training company that can help your helicopter training. They train daytime, nighttime, aerial firefighting, hoist, long line, fast rope, rappel, and more. They can assist your program with standardization and safety checks or just an FAA annual refresher. With the certified flight instructor pilots and experienced crew, they are ready to help your agency keep up to date with current techniques, rules, regulations, and equipment. Plus, right now, SR3 is offering 10% off anything in their web store with the promo code, all capital letters, REALRESCUE, R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q. Plus, they are offering another 10% from their partners, Petzl, and their equipment, all you gotta do is send an email to info at sr3rescueconcepts.com 
mention this podcast, The Real Rescue Podcast, and they'll take care of the rest. And Versalist. When you're at the gym working on your squats, building your leg strength for the next rescue mission, depth matters. If you're like me, getting below parallel on your squats is tough. Well, allow me to introduce Versalifts Heel Inserts. These gems have become one of my new favorite accessories in my gym bag. Simply place them into your regular training shoe, either on top or underneath the insole, and bam! You've got a heel lift benefit of a weightlifting shoe, but the comfort and flexibility of your regular trainer. So the next time your workout just has heavy squats, grab your V2 strength inserts. Or how about a run, pull up, push up, air squat, and another run? Grab your V2 endurance insert. Or my own personal workout of running, clusters, and ring muscle up. Grab your original V2 inserts and go crush it. Check them out today at vlifts.com or on Instagram at Versalift. And when you're ready to get a few pair of your own, make sure you get your 10% off with the Real Rescue discount code. Squat well, friends. Coming up next on this episode of The Real Rescue, we are joined by a survivor. And this survivor in particular suffered traumatic brain injury. She was featured on all sorts of different news articles, uh, including CNN, which the cover was Jamie Mo Crazy, nearly died in a skiing accident. Now she wants to help others who have suffered traumatic brain injury. Forbes magazine, Jamie Mo Crazy's horrific ski crash and how she's overcoming it. Medicine Matters, lucky breaks for former ski competitor after Whistler accident brain injury and including the new york times a fresh start on a mountain that changed her life ladies and gentlemen please welcome our next guest and her story of recovery and survival and what she is doing now mrs jamie mo crazy my name is jason quinn i am united states coast guard rescue swimmer number 500 these are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Real Rescue. Today, I am super excited. Uh, very rarely on this podcast have I had an opportunity to have the rescued come on to us. Now, specifically, uh, episode 144, we had a guest by the name of Brian Fishbook. And in that episode, he talked about uh, a, a lady that did some crazy backflip, hit her head, had a major head injury, and he was the savior that's, that showed up on scene. It was him and another guy, and he was actually straddling you and breathing for you as you're going down the mountain to the helicopter uh ladies and gentlemen without further ado it's miss jamie mo crazy what's up girl welcome to the show hi thank you so much for having me i am so excited to be here because exactly what you said you do you talk about people who rescue other individuals and I would not be here today without Brian. And so I am so passionate about what he did for me and giving a voice to all those heroes that actually do save and change lives. Um, so I, I'm so excited to be here. 
I have a little tear right here. Just, oh, thanks, Jamie. <laughs> now, Brian is the man. And this, when the story, when he started talking about the story about you to me, I was, I was blown away. And I'm like, holy cow. And, and I remember hearing all about this, but now being able to talk to you about it and actually hearing from him to begin with was just like mind blowing to me. So thanks for joining me to hear, we get to hear your side of the story, which is great. And everything you're doing now, because we don't, like, I really mean it. We do not, we, us as rescuers, we don't, we don't talk to anybody after, after we, we get them out of harm's way and we'd have no idea what they go on and do. And, and we get to hear what somebody like you has been rescued and as and what you've done with your life since then. It, I am, I am so excited. So excited. <laughs> yeah, me too. And actually on um, my one year injury anniversary, I went back to Whistler um, and was part of the World Skin Snowboard Festival. They treated me amazing. Um, I was VIP at all the events and I went to the were. ICU in, in Vancouver and I met the head of my neuro care in the um, ICU at Vancouver General Hospital and this doctor was in a meeting and he came out of the meeting with tears in his eyes and he said exactly Aww. what you said he said we never see beyond the ICU like we never see like I had heard that you had survived but to see you standing there it, it it's just mind-blowing and since that happened I've actually been really passionate about giving a voice to the heroes like you who are saving people's lives because you don't get to see the outcome. And sometimes it can feel like it's it's another day in the office. But as Brian pointed out in, in his interview, you need to treat every person you work with with the one in a miracle chance that they're going to survive. That's what Brian said is like they thought that that was about my chances of even living to the hospital, but yeah. they fought for that miracle. They fought for that 1%. And sometimes you need to be reminded that it can happen. You can create that recovery and it can't happen without the heroes like you who immediately are on the site, critical first responders. Um, it's just, it's so important what you guys do. And so I'm, I'm so honored to be here to be able to share a little bit. So if you're needing an inspiration, whenever you need an inspiration, you can just listen to this episode and be like, this is why I do my job. Dina, I, you're amazing. That's all there is to it. I, I think I'm good. I'm, I'm out. No, I'm just kidding. Jamie, <laughs> we, all right. So I, let me, let me touch on something for you. Um, Jamie Mo crazy. Let's start with that. All right. And this is for everybody that doesn't know who you are. Mo crazy. Really? Is it real? Yeah. And, I actually, um, I, I, hold on, because I had somebody actually ask me, Mo Crazy, is that really your last name? I was like, yeah, I think so. They're like, no. I was like, yeah, I think so. <laughs> and a lot of a lot of people ask that, and it's a great story. So I'm glad we started with that. And it also gives a little bit of my, my background is part of that story. Um, and so since I was a baby, a, a couple of years old, I have always been adventurous and pushing the limits. And I climbed up the drapes in my living room. This is a story that gets told at all family events. So I climbed up the drapes in the living room and I got stuck at the top and I was like, mommy helping me, mommy helping me. And my mom 
was in the kitchen and she comes running out and she goes, oh, my little Mo crazy because my birth last name was Crane Mosey. And the Mosey is French. It's Mosey like cozy, but it's A-U-M-A-U-Z-Y. Um, and if you mix them all up, you come up with Mo crazy. And since I was a little bit Mo crazy, my mom started calling me her little Mo crazy. And um, then since I've always been very competitive, um, I started competing. And when I was like nine years old, I actually won state championships in gymnastics. And the very wow. same year, I won state championships in skiing. And so I was the little Mo crazy. Um, and then that name started to stick um, because Crane Mosey is hard to pronounce and it's easier to forget. But Mo Crazy, no one forgets Mo Crazy. Like I was even no. at the farmer's market yesterday up in Park City and the guy's like, oh, Mo Crazy. And he's like, your name's Jamie, right? <laughs> uh, let me introduce you to my wife. This is Mo Crazy. This is Mo Crazy. And I was like, yeah, everyone remembers Mo Crazy. And she's like, yeah, he said it like five times. Um, so then when I started competing professionally, because we can touch more about, about that, but I, I, I was very adventurous and then competing in lots of different things. And then I started competing professionally in skiing because back to when I was nine years old, I had an interview in the newspaper and I said, I wanted to combine skiing and gymnastics on snow. And that's what happened with slope style skiing, which is multiple jumps and rails. And you get judged on your overall impression and it's combining gymnastics and skiing. So I, I became a professional in that. And the announcers would say, Jamie Crane was the Mo Crazy is now on course. So that name kind of continued to stick. And then I had my really critical accident, which we can talk about in more details. Um, but when I went into the hospital, my little sister started the hashtag Mo Crazy Strong to bring together my support the energy, everyone's information about me, all the updates. It was all with a hashtag Mo Crazy Strong because Mo Crazy, me, was going to become strong again. And so that has turned into our nonprofit, Mo Crazy Strong. And I, I keep pointing to my wrist because I have a tattoo right here. Oh, um, yeah. um, and then actually we would give out little wristbands that were magenta because that's my favorite color, bright pink. Um, when I was living in the hospital, so all my supporters, we, everyone would wear a little wristband that said hashtag Mo Crazy Strong on it. Um, and then the next New Year's Day, I started um, 2016 because my accident was in 2015 with it, it getting permanent, a tattoo on me. Um, and then in addition to that, so it, it stayed a nickname. And when, when I started public speaking, it was Jamie Mo Crazy. That was like my stage name. And then last year... In May of 2022, my husband and I got married on Whistler. So we went back to the mountain that almost took my life to marry the love of my life. Love yes. it. I'm yeah. cute and corny. I'm so corny. Yeah. I love it. My wife is Ooh, loving this right now. Yeah, I, you <laughs> know what? I might, oh, I might have to step up my game a little bit more right now. Come on, Jamie. <laughs> So we went back and when we were talking about like names and things like that, when you're getting married, um, we both decided and he supported that. Why don't I just go to my nickname? And that's who I've always identified with and what I feel passionate about. And so I could become Jamie Mo Crazy. 
So I legally changed my name. And it wasn't, uh, it was interesting because since I was legally changing my name, but it wasn't to his last name, even though it had to do with the wedding, it wasn't really just because of the marriage. So like I had to go to the court case and I had to do all this stuff to make sure I wasn't like a pedophile, like trying to change my last name or something. No, that's, that's seriously the first thing I they, know, they did so funny. to make sure. Yeah. And um, the judge, he actually, it was, it was interesting because it was an online, online judge hearing. And he said that when he first got it, that this girl wanted to change her name to Mo Crazy, he was like, who wants to actually have that as a permanent last name? That's, that's, that's a little insane. And then he said, he looked me up and got so inspired to be a part of that journey and to be the person to say that I could change my name to get, get into that identity. Uh, so he spent like the whole court case talking about how excited he was, which was kind of funny. Um, but so now it's legally my last name. So my last name is legally on my on my passport uh, for the IRS. Uh, it's Jamie Mo Crazy. I love it, man! What a oh, what a great connection from childhood all the way to now. Beautiful. Well done. Well done. I like that a lot. That's great. All right. So let me ask you, you know, you touched a little bit um, how you wanted to take gymnastics and then skiing, freestyle skiing and put it in together. Like once you started doing that, like I have a couple of things here that are written down. Um, Junior World Cup, you came in first place. USX Games in number 17, you came in seventh. Then you went to Europe for their X Games, came in fourth. Then you did the International uh, Federation of Skiing Freestyle, Freestyle Ski Championship, uh, 13th on the slope style, 13th on the half pipe, which landed you second overall. Like you, you're not just good. You're, you're like really good. Uh, you can, you can ski. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, thank you. You're thank welcome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting to me because again, let me, let me back up to Brian for a minute. I mean, you had some, like, all. let me ask you this. Hold on. Before I get into Brian, what brought you into the skiing side? What, what took you that way all the way? Well, I had, I grew up a ski racer. Um, and when I was growing up, I didn't really, slope style didn't really exist. And then when it started existing, like in the X Games, it was just men who, who did slope style. Um, for the first couple of years at X Games, no women competed. And so I was just ski racing and doing gymnastics. And then I didn't actually start until I was 16. Um, and I went to the water amps, which is when you ski down plastic and you flip into a pool. And oh, I was there awesome. a week. Yeah, it was super fun. And during that time, I actually learned a front flip and a back flip. And I was recruited to join the U.S. aerial team and stay living in Lake Placid, New York. So I did that. And then that first winter, I realized that with slope style, it's flipping like aerials, but it's much more creative. And so I loved the creativity factor of it. And so uh -huh. that that drew me to it a lot. And um, I started competing pretty heavily in it but I, I basically just jumped into this super fast like I was going to a for my for my freshman year I was going to a prep school in New Hampshire which is interesting because I was actually homeschooled um, so all through elementary school and middle school I was homeschooled 
which gave me the opportunity to ski during the week um, and on all this stuff, which was an amazing opportunity. And my mom actually has a master's in education. Um, oh, nice. As well, which um, is, is phenomenal. She has a lot of certifications and degrees and she's very smart and educated. Um, but her master's in education, she had a hyper, hyper child who wanted to ski all the time. And so she didn't want me to think that school was boring. So we would just go to school at the top of the mountain. Uh, we'd like hike for like a couple hours and then we'd do our lessons at the top and then we'd hike down. So it was a very creative format, which was really cool. Um, and then I went to a prep school for my freshman year, first year of high school to, to prove I was smart and could get good grades. And I got six excellent efforts and all A's. So I was like, did that. Yeah, and yeah. then they were like, all right, so do you want to stay living at the Olympic Training Center in like class in New York? Because I went the summer after my fresh, first year um, to the water amps. And so then the next winter, I, I just stayed there um for the for, well, oh for the gosh. fall and I was immediately doing like North American competitions going to Canada and the U.S. um and and competing professionally um wow. and then I want I, I got second at aerials at junior Olympics and then second at slope style the first year and so then I uh, started really training for it that summer and doing like the slope style training and stuff too and half pipe and then the next year at junior olympics I got third in half pipe first in slope style first in aerials and first in overall and then that's oh how I God. got invited to be the only U.S. representative at youth olympics which is actually in New Zealand um, and that summer I, I won youth, I, I won in New Zealand and I actually talked with the International Olympic Committee about adding slope style skiing to the Olympics because at this time it was not an Olympic sport. It was just an X game sport. So neither skiing slope style or skiing half pipe were in the Olympics. So wow. I talked about it to the IOC and they decided to add it to the Sochi Olympics in 2014. And in that's 2013. all because of you. That's all because of you. Well <laughs> I'm not done. Sure if it's there, all there's of me, a lot of like, you know what? We're gonna give you credit right now. I'm just gonna throw I did it have out a there. little part. <laughs> there are a lot of people saying, thank you, Jamie Mo Crazy. <laughs> so it, it, it was exciting. And it it's it's interesting how how fast it happened and then really how short my career was because um there is that. And then in 2013, that's when we went to the different X games. And I went to the Olympic test event in Sochi, Russia. Um, I was representing the U.S. for the test event. And then in 2014, the year of the Olympic qualifier, I actually hurt my knee. And it was uh, I like that summer I tore my meniscus and I didn't get it fixed. And I was bone on bone on my knee and I was creating these bone spurs and I wasn't landing because my knee would just give out. Ouch. And I did not make the Olympics. And that was super emotionally challenging for me. And, and I knew that I would make the next Olympics and I would keep going. Like my career was not, I had only been a professional for like a few years. It was like still at the start of my career. So even though I was really devastated, I didn't make it. I was like, okay, the next one I can make it. And I, you know, just stay in there. 
And then I had my brain injury. <laughs> Man, that's, that's like awesome and then terrible. Like, I'm, so I, all right, let's get into that for a minute. Can we get, can we get into that? Are you good with this? Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. Here I'm, we are. I'm very comfortable about it. And it's interesting because um, I do a lot of podcasts and I do a lot also with my mom and my sister who you'll hear are founders of Mo Crazy Strong, our nonprofit. And my mom is one of my um, biggest superheroes. Um, and and there was a collaboration of a lot of superheroes that made my injury happen. And I have no, I have no part in the recovery process. Like I didn't have control of myself for like a year. Like I, I literally, after my accident, could not drive a car. I could not make decisions for myself. Like I legally was not an adult. Um, and so the reason I had my recovery was because of the, the first responders, what they did, and then the medical staff, what they did, and then what my family caregiver, family caregivers led by my mom, what they did. And the collaboration of all of that created this outcome. And it's what we advocate about and share as our as, for our nonprofit work man that is incredible all right so let's let's drop into the uh the day of the event i you're thinking i like i don't even know what you're thinking you're on the top of the slope you're looking down at this killer ramp what you your trick you were going to do a double flip at the time right double back mm -hmm. backflip if i remember correctly right yeah, technically it was a double flat seven, which is a little bit of an off axis double backflip. Oh, okay. All right. But the interesting thing is, is I have no memory of the day at all. Um, oh, and I oh have no memory, kidding. Okay. Yeah. I have no memory of the day and no memory of six weeks after. Um, so that's just completely blank um, in okay. my mind. Okay. I have very, very vague memories of driving up to Whistler. And so, my sister, Jeannie, this was her first world tour finals. She was 19. She was invited to compete in half pipe in her first world tour finals. And we were really excited. And at the Whistler Ski and Snowboard Festival, which is also world tour finals, they have a gala. And it's the one time that you, the whole ski community dresses up together, all the professionals and my little sister, Jeannie, is a fashionista and she competes with her red lipstick on and, and she like has made, like designed and sewed each one of her outfits for our, our film premieres that um, like the film festivals that we've yeah. gone to with Hashtag Mo Crazy Strong, which we can get to in, in a little bit. But um, she's made every single one of her outfits for every film festival. Um, oh, my and gosh. So she's really like not into that, into that kind of stuff. And we're like, yes, she can dress up for the gala. And then instead, the day of the slope style, she was actually standing at the top of the mountain because um, she doesn't compete in slope style, just half pipe. And I was competing. And my first run, I ended up in fourth place. Now, that's not on the podium. That's the first loser. <laughs> that's the <laughs> hardest place to be. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So um, I wanted to change my off-axis backflip to an off-axis double backflip on the same jump. And I gave my little sister a hug and I dropped in for that run. 
and she actually saw my takeoff. She couldn't see my landing because of the mountains, but she saw my takeoff on the double flip. It looked like maybe I landed it. Um, she, she couldn't really tell, but then I didn't hit the next jump. And then she heard the ski patrol radio crackle to life saying, we need all hands on deck and a helicopter on standby. And wow. that's when she knew it was really bad. So oh, then out of word, she and my coach put their skis on and she skied down and she saw me and I was convulsing and I was spewing blood and my eyes were rolled back in my head. And that's a memory that she will have for the rest of her life seeing me on the snow and she had no capability to help me she had no idea what I would become what would happen if I would live her life just changed in the blink of an eye it was literally like she gave me a hug I went in for my run even when she couldn't see the landing and I didn't hit the next jump she didn't really think that much of it because in skiing you you fall a fair amount and then when she skied down to me with seeing her older sister convulsing with her eyes rolled back, that memory, I can't even imagine what it's like. And she says it's still clear as day. Um, and she's actually um, writing um, and has been since my a, a few months after my accident, she started putting down on paper a memoir from her point of view because like I said I don't remember all the critical stages and she yeah. was there and so it's written in like a novel format so you think you go through the experience that she went through you see me you have the thoughts you, you go to the hospital you, you experience all of this as if you're living it yeah. um, and then when she's driving to the hospital she has all these flashbacks of my childhood growing up so you you get to know this adventurous little girl who's dying you think um and then the transition of my recovery and and not dying so it's it's a phenomenal book and when it gets published I will let you guys get guys know because yeah, yeah, it's not published yeah. yet please um, do I I'm heck I'm excited just to hear you, you just gave me chills right there by the way I just throw yeah. it out there like but it, it's so it's so well done because this this story about my accident and my recovery has has gained so much traction and and attention. Yeah. Um, and there's so many people who say, you should write a book, you should write a book, you should write a book. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but wouldn't it be so much more powerful if the person who actually remembers these details <laughs> and experienced these details writes the book instead of just me writing a book that you don't really connect to? Where I'm just like spitting facts. But yeah. like, yeah, because that's one of the things since I have no memory of that time or the initial stages in the hospital, any of that, um, a lot of people will say, like, what did you think? Or, or, or what was your memories? And, and since I don't have any, when I do my motivational speaking, I actually have like a one minute video of my mom and sister, Jeannie, uh, my mom, Grace and Jeannie being interviewed about the accident. And my mom starts tearing up 
and like it's so much more powerful than me telling you because I can tell you the what I've been told um but feeling that connection to it and the passion to it and like people say is it is it hard to tell it and it's always been super easy for me to tell the story one because I just love to talk and two because I don't remember it so it's like spitballing a story that I have no connection to but every time my mom and my sister tell the story like my mom's interviewed and like for our documentary she was interviewed and, and she just starts to cry and like we when we did some recreation scenes and I'm like lying like it like all dressed up in, in a bed she just walked into the room and immediately burst into tears because she has the memories coming back wow. so I give way more credit for them to relive it for all of the media work that we've done then yeah. I'm not reliving something because I have no memory of it so I'll tell you what, I'm going to bring in Brian then for the minute, you know, because Brian showed up on scene. I believe he was second on scene off the top of my head. Um, and he was the one that, that was breathing for you all the way down to the helicopter. You know, the other guy, uh, which I I apologize, I forgot um, who Brian said he was with, but his partner skied you all the way down. And that was it for them. This is why I love you being here right now, because for us, we put you guys, our, our patients on the helicopter and, and then we don't see you anymore. And like you said earlier, the neurosurgeon, we, it's just something that in our profession, we don't, we don't have that opportunity to do. So the facts that we know, or that, you know, I should say, are um, you had your crash, you got flown out to the hospital right into surgery. And then from there, everyone heard that you recovered, right? Mm -hmm. What point did you start remembering and what part did you, did, did things start to come back for you? So um, that's a great question. And besides being told that Brian was there, um, I, we actually have a picture um, and, and G, it's a picture. I'm lying on the sled. Brian is straddling me, pumping air into me. You can see the helicopter in the background and you can see Jeannie just standing there. Um, and that's like one of the most powerful pictures that we have and it, it's in the documentary and it, it, it's, um, all over, but so Brian made it possible for me to breathe because I wasn't really doing that. Um, and he had to be pumping my, my breath to get to the helicopter. Um, and then from Whistler get to Vancouver general hospital and then I actually became the first person at Vancouver General Hospital. Um, and they think one of the first people in all of North America to receive an intracranial monitoring system, which tested your oxygen and your pressure. So they drilled a hole in my skull and inserted a device that like spread out of my skull that tested the pressure from my brain to my skull so they could know if they had to remove part of my skull. Um, and then also testing out the oxygen level, which that was the new procedure was the oxygen test. And they have realized that the oxygen does not go to your brain the same way after a brain injury as it previously did, um, like in the critical stages. And so if you yeah. don't have enough oxygen, that's what causes the permanent brain damage quite often. Wow. Um, and so 
yeah, they've started using these intracranial monitoring devices and it's, it did wonders for me. Um, and it has improved Vancouver General Hospital's success rate. The, the tricky thing about it is it's a very invasive procedure and it's a very expensive procedure. So those are kind of the two um, largest challenges with continuing to implement this intracranial device. Um, it's, it's not used in every hospital all over the world. Um, and the reason why is because it's invasive and expensive. Jeez, oh man. All right, so now what, at what point, like you start waking Did my up. memory come back? Yeah. Yeah, so when I, I actually got airlifted from Vancouver General Hospital to Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I went to the different floors and then I was on the 13th floor, which was inpatient rehab. And that's when my mind started to come back. So I was already, I think, walking um, when my mind started to come back. And when it start, when my mind started to come back, yeah. um, I refused to believe that I was in a hospital. I, <laughs> um, no way. The nurses would actually, like, one of the things they had to do before they sent me home um, to do my outpatient therapy was talk about if I knew where I was. And um, I didn't want to be in a hospital. Old people and sick people go to a hospital. I thought I was in a movie about a hospital because I had a hammock in my room. I had pictures all over the wall. And I had a point. When they poked me with the needles, it didn't even hurt. So obviously it was a movie about a hospital and they had a hard time figuring out how they should tell their patient. It didn't hurt because she was paralyzed still on that side of her stomach that they were poking the needles in. So they weren't just props. Uh, oh and my gosh. It wasn't a hospital. And, um, and that's interesting. Cause I think that's, that's one of like the, the mindset things that I, I took with me throughout the whole thing. Um, was I didn't believe I was in a hospital because I wanted to be okay. And then I did everything it took to be okay. And part of that was surrounding myself and trusting myself to all these people. Because like the first responders, if one of the first responders, like if Brian had kind of like half-assed his job, like not actually paid attention to what he was doing, there's a big chance I would not be having this conversation with you. Yeah. If he fight for that 1% chance, if any one of those first responders had kind of been like, oh, she's kind of a goner. If the medical team, when I arrived at Vancouver General Hospital, if any of them had been like, ah, eh, like they thought I was a goner, like, they they did in in my documentary i interview that um i i interview the doctor and um he said many of his colleagues thought that i was a goner but they still fought for the chance that i wasn't I um that. and that's huge freaking awesome that is so awesome um you you and i talked a little bit before we started recording uh about your mom your mom did so much for you while you were like under or in the coma. 
And, and how, how does she tie into this? Because I, you know what? You're just going to have to repeat everything again because I love it. I think it's amazing what your mom did for you. Hey, go mom. Whoop, whoop. Yeah. And so that's one of the interesting things is because like a lot of people love their moms and they're really passionate about being family caregivers, but they have no idea what they're doing. Like when you become a family caregiver, there are people who have, so have them, they have yeah. no idea. Like you had some education and training to to become who you are as a first responder. You have experience, you have practice, you you do it over and over, like it, you're trained for it. And when you become a family caregiver, you're not, <laughs> which is actually pretty challenging for a lot of family caregivers because they have power, but they don't even know what they should do or what they could do. And so that's one of the huge things and one of the, the big points of our nonprofit, Mo Crazy Strong, is that my mom had the education. Before my accident, she had a master's in psychology and um, a master's in uh, education. And during her early childhood education, she did a lot of studying about um, brain construction and how to wire your brain and how to start your synaptic connections firing. Cause that's like what you want to do when you're going to school and things like that is like, you're learning things, you're growing your mind. And so she used that knowledge for my redevelopment and regrowing my mind and started when I was in a coma. So I had nothing to do with this whatsoever. But when I was in the coma, she started talking with the doctors about adding fish oil to my feeding tube and probiotics to my feeding tube and touching me and playing very light music that I liked and things like that. And in our documentary, the doctor, uh, Dr. Mapinder Sakon, actually talks about how prior to my injury, he was taught. And, and the medical world was kind of under the belief that you wanted no stimulation in critical coma cases. And when I walk, when my mom walked into the room, my heart rate would pick up. You could see on my devices, because I was hooked up to a million wow. things, yeah. that I could tell my mom was there. And when she stroked my arm, and she was very gentle, like, you know, she would just like stroke my arm in some of like the deepest and darkest, most critical stages, my family was there the entire time. They took shifts. And so my my older sister, who's actually a doctor, um, she flew, she, she was working in Connecticut. She had actually, she was working in New York at Wild Cornell. And um, she flew out. And then my other older sister flew out to Canada that and my mom and dad and youngest sibling flew out to Canada and they all met Jeannie who was in Canada. And so I had all of my immediate family there and they they had shifts. So they were with me every moment of 24 hours a day. Wow. And it was interesting because at Vancouver General Hospital, that was not the protocol and that was not what was expected. So you, well, and while the doctors were making their rounds, the family members had to leave. However, since my oldest sister was a doctor and we're a little bit more crazy, 
<laughs> she became my primary care physician legally. And so then she was required to stay when the doctors made their rounds. And then she said that my mom had to stay to give family feedback when the doctors made their rounds. And then Vancouver was kind of a little worried that these crazy Americans were going to sue them. <laughs> so they let us do it. And then since my case, they've actually legally changed their protocol for family involvement. And uh, Dr. Sakon has, has said that it changed their outcomes and it changed their mindset because wow. they realized that while the family members don't know the medical jargon or any of that information, the family members spend so much time with the patients that the doctors need to use the family members. So like now when the doctors make their rounds, unless you sign off and you legally opt out of it, the family members stay and then they're asked questions about the individual because the doctor only sees them for like 10 minutes out of the day and the family members see them for hours I, and hours yeah. out of the day. So yeah. um, they, they, they utilize them. But that's one of the big things in the, in the medical world is that since the family members don't have any education or knowledge of what they can do, um, and the hospitals don't utilize that utilize the family caregivers. And we actually started working with Dr. Sacone and we'd get recommended to some of the patients that he works with. So we could give them guidance and we could say um, as suggestions, we're very clear about the fact that we are not doctors prescribing yep. anything. Yep. And yep. you need to do everything in collaboration with your doctor. But disclaimer. if we <laughs> yeah, so there's a disclaimer for everything. But if we suggest that you talk to Dr. Sikon about adding probiotics in the in the feeding tube, he can do it, but he can't add the probiotics to the feeding tubes if he's not asked. And if right. the family caregivers don't know that they're supposed to ask, they're not going to know that they have power that they're not utilizing in the recovery of their individual. And it, it's one of the things that is so jarring to me because I'm like, so you you know scientifically that in adults fish oil will help their brain recover, but it's not part of the hospital's protocol. So you can't add it to their treatment, but they can have it added if they ask to add it, but then nobody knows to ask and nobody knows who to talk to that they don't know any of this information. They so, do now. Let's go, Jamie. <laughs> that's that's kind of what um, we do as a nonprofit. We do like masterminds, programs, workshops for family caregivers and survivors on things that they should know to have a, a yeah. full recovery, kind of give them a blueprint because that's one of the other big things about brain injury is you have like the critical care and then the critical care doesn't talk all, all the way to the outpatient care. And then quite often you get cut off um, in your outpatient care because your insurance company has a cap on it. So even if you are recovering and you hit the cap, the insurance company won't pay for your recovery anymore. Even if you're making progress, they're like, oh, you're done. So then unless you have the funds or your state is part, has a, a, a traumatic brain injury rehabilitation fund, which only 28 states in the U.S. have, okay. you're, you're cut off. So there's individuals who their recovery, they could continue recovering, but they don't have the money to pay for the recovery. Yeah. So 
it's kind of messed up because the U.S. is okay paying for a permanent disability long term. Like for me, it would be like roughly 60 years of my life if I was permanently disabled and you had to pay for me. But they don't want to do the upfront caring costs. So they just cut you off and then pay for your disability. Wow. What a trip. Kind of, you know, when you think about it like that too, like money up front could fix it, but no, we're going to, we're going to do the long term and somebody's going to be as bad as I'll call it a vegetable is yeah. as bad as that sounds. But and, and that's, that's why um, we actually, with our short documentary, we screened hashtag mo crazy strong on Capitol Hill in Washington, DC, in front of Congress members and legislation of, of brain injury. And we spoke with um, Congress member Bill Pascrell from New Jersey, and he actually founded the Congressional Brain Injury Task Force. Um, and nice. one of the things is um, why we did that is because my mom, my sister and I, the Mo Crazy Strong founders are so passionate about changing federal policy, adding more federal funding to brain injury recovery because it's one of the most common disabilities. Um, it's actually um, been like the number one permanent disability payments that get given out for brain injuries in, in wow. the US. And it has such little federal attention and funding because once you get past the critical stages or you never encounter the critical stages, most of the deficits are invisible. So like your cognition and your emotions are the two biggest long-term deficits from a brain injury. And when I say long-term, I don't mean you can't heal from them. I would like to say that I am proudly very cognitive now and have emotional stability, but it took me a good five-year chunk of time to be able to handle when my emotions were spiraling out of control. And those kinds of challenges that people face, yeah, one, are quite often not covered by insurance. So like my psychology, I went, I went to... Um, mental therapy I had a psychotherapist um after my brain injury and that was um from my funding from high fives foundation um which is an amazing organization so they gave me the grant money to cover to cover that but it's not covered by your insurance it's not part of your rehabilitation for your brain injury um even though the most common deficit of a brain injury is emotional instability. We do your occupational therapy. We do your physical therapy, um, your speech therapy, but you don't start out with a, a psychotherapist. Um, some very, very small amount of, of trauma centers are beginning to implement it because they're realizing that Every person who had a brain injury had significant changes to their life and also the damages in your head. And that's where all your emotions are located. Yeah. So they're beginning to recognize it. But it, brain injury needs a lot more attention, awareness, advocacy, change so that more individuals can have the type of a success story that I had. And, and it's like similar to how I had so many heroes that played such a huge role in my recovery like I I really like 
have so many heroes that I would not like, I would not be here without Brian. Like there's no chance. Like I wouldn't. And then if I, if like all the different steps of my heroes, like if either one of one of them failed, I would not be who I am. And so that's really huge. Um, there's also so many components to brain injury and your recovery opportunities that you have for long-term recovery. And then there's there's medical advances. There's just like so many aspects to my recovery process. And what I can do is I can give a voice and a light to that stuff. Because um, I didn't really have a huge role in my immediate recovery. I, I did um, have, when my mind came back, I had a bit of a role of like rebuilding my life and finding my identity again and building Jamie 2.0. Um, I still was not the main person who did that. My mom would drive me to my outpatient five days a week because wow. like I mentioned, insurance cuts you off. However, Utah has a traumatic brain injury fund and the traumatic brain injury fund paid for my outpatient therapy five days a week, even though my insurance wouldn't cover that. Um, so I could have the therapy that we thought the doctors thought was best for me. And I couldn't drive a car then. I was legally not allowed to, and I couldn't do it. So my mom drove me um, every day. Wow. Yeah, your your mom really, yeah, she, she might be like the greatest mom. Now, yeah. I, I, I don't know if I can compare that next to my mom, but your mom, <laughs> she stepped up really well for you. So we'll give her the number one at the moment, okay? <laughs> And that's one of the, one of the things uh, is that she stepped up for me, but now she wants to take her education and her learning and, and everything that worked for me and back it by science and share it for yeah. other individuals. So she's a PhD candidate in mind body medicine right now, because wow. she's using a her. lot of the different aspects of her recovery, like her knowledge and why she did this. And she's studying it specifically on traumatic brain injury recovery. So there is science behind it. So like one of the examples yeah. I can give is how when I was in a, well, when I was in the hospital, I was still living in the hospital. My right side didn't work at all. She had the idea of tying down my strong hand to make me utilize the weak my weak hand and that's like um scientifically we know that if you give like short time of forcing yourself to move then you're you can rewire your brain and you can create those brain pathways to reopen so yeah. even though regaining mobility after brainstem damage is still in the single digits right now it's because they haven't forced themselves to rewire that part of their brain um, and so she's looking into the, the science behind that. Or like another example is like when I was walking up the stairs and I would walk up the stairs at the beginning, I could only walk up a couple stairs and I had a gait belt, which is like the human leash. And I had a therapist with me and helping me walk up a couple of flights of stairs or not flights of stairs, a couple of stairs at first. Yeah. Um, and my mom would walk up the stairs next to me because she knew about mirror imaging, which is something you do as a child. Like children do mirror imaging to everybody when they're young, which is how they learn how to do things. And you get the understanding of doing things is because you see others and, and you, you mimic them. 
And she, she understood that from her early childhood development education. Um, and so she's specifically taking that now and turning it into brain reconstruction after a traumatic brain injury, why it's so important to do mirror imaging and why doing these exercises with your patient can help them see how to do it and understand how to do it with the mirror, the science behind the mirror imaging. Um, so that makes her the expert for Mo Crazy Strong. So all this work she's doing has kind of gone beyond just her love for me. Her love for me is as a mom. Um, she was great in my recovery as my mom. But then since she had the knowledge and she's adding to it, she's now Mo Crazy Strong's expert and she's reaching, like she's helping so many um, individuals, family caregivers, and, and, and the whole family have kind of a blueprint, an understanding of the different steps it takes and why you can rebuild your movement after a brain injury, even though it was prior thought to be impossible. And Another example of prior thought to be impossible was when my older sister went to Georgetown Medical School, which is one of the top medical schools in the world. Yeah. She was taught you were over 26 years of age and you had a brain injury. You had two years to heal or else the deficits were permanent because neuroplasticity only happened in the cortical stages of development, which are the first couple years of your life. And now as uh, the scientific understanding has has evolved and we understand more we know that with neuroplasticity you can change your mind at any stage of your life um, but it's still quite often not really understood completely with brain injury so people say especially the family caregivers who think that they're comforting the individual because their their family member just went through this trauma and now they're home so they've finished their outpatient therapy they've finished the hospital and take me for example at this stage I still couldn't hold water any liquid with my right hand I, my hand would shake if I was trying to hold something it would shake and so the family caregiver says oh I feel so bad for you I, I'm so sorry why don't you hold it in your left hand like compensate compensate coddle coddle oh yeah yeah instead of my mom would say all right Jamie holding water, a glass of water in front of your kitchen, like you do with your little kids when they, they don't know how to hold, hold glasses either. You don't give them a glass glass and top of a white couch full of tomato. <laughs> you don't do that. You give them water in the kitchen so that, you know, I would spill it. And it was super humiliating and depressing. And I felt really bad about myself that I couldn't hold water, but because she forced me to hold water in that hand it recreated the brain pathways in my brain and we all have trillions of synaptic connections so even if some are permanently damaged after the brain injury we can utilize more to get to the same results that we had before if we force ourselves to do it we push ourselves to do it and in those decisions i i, I still was not at the cognitive level to make my own decisions for myself so i needed my caregivers and, and advocacy to help push me in that direction to hold water and to believe that I could get to the point where I can hold the liquid in my right hand now. And, and I could get to that point. 
And quite often the belief is you're never going to get to that point. So you're cut off. You have brick ceilings put on you because you don't think it's possible and your family caregivers don't think it's possible. And Amy, you quips, have quips. an incredible drive. This this is an inc incredible recovery and a credible drive. Like the mindset there, even after the injury, just to drive forward and to keep pushing forward. Well done. That well, most you. people don't have that to begin with. And you do it after an injury. You just said you, oh. you're all depressed. You can't hold a glass of water and, and you're driving forward to say, you know what? I can, I will, I am going to that. I love that. I love that drive and motivation. Well, thank you. And that, that drive and motivation was built throughout my life. Um, and my mom, again, had a federal grant from the government. She self-esteem to women. So she raised me. I was raised with the belief that I could do whatever I wanted to do. I could take yes. the steps, I could build the habits and I could do it. And that's why I became the first woman in the world to double flip at X games because I knew I could do it. I would take the steps, I would do the training and, and I would do it. And that understanding of what it takes to do it played a huge role in my recovery as well. And that's one of the main reasons I do my motivational speaking. Um, I speak to corporate clients and I also speak to nonprofit clients. And I'm fortunate that I have an amazing story to tell them. Um, and one of the things that their takeaway is, is that belief. Like our minds are so powerful when we believe something. And if you have that belief, again, like Mo Crazy is going to get strong. And, and I stuck <laughs> with that belief. And my family caregivers guided that belief. And I, and, I, and I knew since I was an athlete how to overcome challenges. I had yeah. torn my ACL multiple times before. I had faced struggles and, and, and challenges. And, and I knew that I could get past them. And that, that mindset a lot of people don't have and a lot of companies don't have is how you can take something that seems to be one of the worst experiences of your life and turn it into one of the best experiences of your life. Because I'm so passionate and, and continue to stay involved in brain injury. And like the fact that I, I married the love of my life atop a mountain that almost took my life was a good enough of a corny story. That the New York Times wanted to cover it. And like all that stuff, if I didn't do the work um, for all these things that are developing, like this doc, the documentary, we, we screened it. Our, our global premiere was at Big Sky Documentary Film Festival, which I didn't know much about documentary film festivals. Um, so I was like, when we got in, I was like, okay, cool. And then when I went there, I found out only 6% of the films that apply to Big Sky get screened there. And then I went to some other film festivals and we went to some amazing ones and then like Mountain Film Festival and Telluride. And um, a couple hours before us, they screened Wildlife. Um, and Wildlife was uh, directed, co-directed um, by Jimmy Chin was one of them. He he did the free solo, he has awards and stuff. And, and he was there at Mountain Film in person talking on stage. And I was like, oh my gosh, we were in such great company with people. It was, it was kind of mind blowing to me because I, I look up to him a lot. 
And um, so we've had a great, great film festival run and, and great things. But what I've kind of realized just as like a life principle, if we didn't have the editor that we hired who did Mark Lockie and his name's Mark Lockie, he did an amazing, amazing job. If we didn't have the woman Anne-Marie Keene step on to design all the music. So all the music is, is just custom for us, for the documentary. If again, we didn't have the heroes yeah. work with us and then we didn't take the chance. Like to do just about anything, you have to believe you can do it, which leads us back to like kind of our whole conversation. If as a first responder, you don't believe that this person can live, you don't believe that they can survive, you don't believe that they can have a life, it's it's not powerful enough. You have to believe, even though it doesn't always happen. Uh, I'm not I'm not blind. And I know that you can't guarantee anyone that they're going to have the recovery that I did after any trauma. Agreed. But you also cannot guarantee them that they can't have the recovery that I had. Agreed as well. Oh my gosh, Jamie, you're giving me chills over here. I am loving this. This is like what you have been through from the accident to now. Again, none of us as first responders, as people that go out and do this, hear this stuff. We don't know. You have gone on to now Mo Crazy Strong, nonprofit. Your mom, what she's done to go out, she's getting her PhD or she has her PhD. She, she's in the process. So she's done some years and she has a couple more. Just That's incredible. Like, and just what, not just you, but the people around you and how it gets built up and things that have gone in such a positive light, something so tragic that turned around and was well done. That's all I got to say is well done. <laughs> well, thank you. And now I, I have a lifelong mission <laughs> and journey yes because, um i'm actually the chair of the utah brain injury council and I, i'm very involved in in brain injury and it, it needs a voice it needs awareness it needs attention and there's so many things we could do and improve and um bring in more integrative options to recovery um educate family caregivers like that's one of the things is like um Another quick example story is uh, this past winter, we were working with a family who the daughter had a critical brain injury. She was in the hospital. She was unresponsive. And we sent, we have, we have uh, videos on family caregiving and on the Mo Crazy Strong um, YouTube account. And um, we, we sent it to her or to the family and they started touching her and like very softly playing some music in the background and and when they were holding her hand that was the first time she responded she she they squeezed her hand she squeezed it back wow. and it, it gives me shivers because you never you never know when you're doing this kind of stuff if you made a difference or not and that doesn't really matter if the person recovers and and comes back and squeezes. And so who knows, who knows if our guidance, because before that her family was not touching her at all. Yeah. And yeah. if our guidance to some of the touching and things like that helped her be responsive and, and helped her come back, which 
we're doing some, there, there is some science studying on this, but it's still so new that we can't scientifically say with conviction that yes, it did scientifically make a difference, but we've just had these examples happening over and over. And there have been some studies that are showing that they think that um, familial touch and your your heart waves go out for uh, seven feet and you can feel back. So when you feel your family's there and they're not terrified of, about you, they're, they're helping, it actually helps you come back. But it, it's just such a complex, such a complex thing that we, we can't guarantee it that it does. But the fact that we keep hearing these stories of people that we're helping come back to life in, in their own way and, and, and how much we know that like, like the individuals like you, like the first responders and their work is so essential to even get the individual to the stage that we can help give guidance to the family for their role to help the, the individual come out of the coma. Um, it, it's just such an intertwined, like, like I keep saying, it, it's just so necessary every day for first responders to wake up feeling passionate and knowing that they are going to save some people because it's so hard. And there are people that the first responders can't save. And there are people it's it's a I mean I've never been a first responder so you know more than I do but I just can't even imagine what you guys do like if you're having a bad day if you're having your own yeah. bad day like I, for you to leave that and and go deal with somebody else who's having a worse day like it would be so challenging I, I give you guys so much credit because we we need we need that and there there's so many individuals who would not be alive today if you guys didn't if you weren't around like it's it's such a impressive role um oh, nice. this is why i do this so, podcast because it's it's not talked about some of the guys and girls what they do to go out to help somebody else like brian i never knew brian's story until he came on here and talked about it so it just yeah it just solidifies how much i love hearing these stories and and now hearing it from you, it makes it just that much better. So it's good. And speaking speaking about Brian's story, as he mentioned in his podcast, one of the remarkable things that just ended up happening um, after, after Brian saved me, um, when I said I went back to Whistler for my one-year injury anniversary, and prior to my arrival at Whistler, I was still in disbelief about how serious my accident had been. My mom was like, you're a miracle to be alive. And I was like, that's my mom. Like, yeah, of course. <laughs> She's exaggerating. Come on, mom. <laughs> yeah. And then I found out that like the ski patrol thought I was a miracle to survive, be alive. Yeah. Um, and I found out that the doctors thought I was a miracle to be alive. And I was like, oh, this is more intense than I kind of thought it was. I was just kind of downplaying it. Um, yeah. And then I realized how intense it was. But one of the things that happened was at the World Skin Snowboard Festival, they have like uh, these ski movies that they screen and stuff like that. And they brought me onto, onto the stage in front of like the thousands of people audience. And it was, it was so, gives you goosebumps because my older sister, the doctor, um, she was saying like, 
for the family this was when I was still in the coma and stuff and she was like next year Jamie's gonna go on that stage perfectly fine and then I went on that stage and put my hands up and was like I'm back and yes. it was just it still gives me shivers and and Brian was in that audience and he came up to me afterwards and um he told me what he did to save my life and then he told me that his brother actually took pictures of it and that's how we got the pictures so another first responder bruce brink was a paramedic at the whistler ski patrol um he's now retired and when he showed up he actually intubated me on the mountain which doesn't happen all that often and he he was a a doctor on staff and and most of the time um people are not ready to intubate patients especially on a ski resort and um there was a lot of people and even though I'm five feet tall so I'm like very little apparently at this time I was like a superhuman and I was like super strong so like I could like lift people who weighed like twice as much as me like 200 pounds with like one hand so they had to have multiple people lying on my hands and stuff um and you go through that procedure but that's just part of it like the whole ski patrol who who arrived um they believed in the power of fighting for that miracle chance for this patient that they were working with to have the survival and um Bruce is actually interviewed in our documentary and um it's it's actually one of my favorite quotes and I, I'm like kind of like tearing up and crying um because it's like super emotional to meet someone who saved your life. And I've been told so many times that the fact that I was intubated on the mountain, like that immediacy for how quick that was really added to saving my life. And so in the scene, I say, I'm all tearing up about how how amazing he is. And I go, they told me multiple times that the fact you intubated me saved my life. He's like, well, kind (laughs) of. And it, it just it's so perfect because it's not like like cocky it, it's just like kind of the truth he's like well kind of like and that's the thing and like bringing awareness <laughs> is that people like the different first responders you guys kind of do save people's lives and and your actions kinda. i'm gonna take his life kind of kind of kind of save your life <laughs> yeah I mean, kind of, I did. Like, just, I don't really know just to start? how to yeah. respond. Cause yeah, it, it is, it did happen. Like <laughs> if, if Bruce hadn't intubated me, if Brian hadn't breathed for me, like I would not have gotten to the helicopter. So yeah. like they kind of saved my life. Um, kind of. <laughs> yeah. And we, we've oh, seen. Oh, Jamie, it's great. We've seen, we've gone back to Whistler a, a number of times and we've seen Brian um, and we, we talked with him, but that first meeting when he was like, I was the person who pumped your air. I was like, it, 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 that whole experience gave me so many goosebumps. Um, and then that's actually why one of our biggest goals for fall film festivals is to go to the Whistler ski and snowboard Woo-hoo! film festival i really really hope we get into it um no, me too if we, if we do like people like 
Brian, people like Bruce, like we'll bring all the first responders um, from Worcester Ski Patrol and be like, this film is what you guys created. Um, <laughs> That's so awesome. That would God, that would be like I the most love this festival but, that I think we go to out of all of them. That would be that's like one of our highest. Um, uh, so yeah. Oh my gosh. Ah, if anyone's crossed. listening and they have, if anyone's listening and they have connections to the Whistler Film Festival, be like, oh, I listened to a podcast with Jamie, and I really would love to come and that we'll bring and we'll go on stage and the, and the doctor will come up from Vancouver and we can have so many participants there and it would just be like the biggest best screening for us to have so. I love it let's make it happen Jamie you and me okay you you can make it happen <laughs> oh my gosh Jamie what you're doing since your accident has been just incredible. Now, the next question that I've got for you is, you know, you, what what is the next step for Mo Crazy Strong? What is the next step for the foundation and the nonprofit and then your documentary? What What is it that you're looking to, to show off from here? Because you've already done so much. There's so much more to come and you're just continuing to build more and more and more. So what, what do we get to look forward to seeing now? Well, um, I do have some big dreams. So, um, <laughs> you and me both, girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dreams are great. Um, but don't expect they'll all come true, but just keep dreaming. <laughs> um, and the thing is, so, um, what we want to continue going, so we have some more film festivals that we're doing this fall. And, like I mentioned, hoping for the Whistler one, that's like, our biggest ones make it happen um, and then we're looking to go public with the documentary in march and so we're we're talking to some different distribution outlets and that's not quite public yet but so we're looking to go public so then you can like watch it on one of your streaming platforms and one of the things we want to do with that is just raise awareness like give a voice to the invisible struggles of brain injury and the opportunities um, required to have a recovery and how to have a blueprint to understand those opportunities and understand things like how much your nutrition plays a role, your mindset plays a role. So in collaboration with the the medical side, which is like more, more clear cut things, but um, how some of these other like little integrative approaches and like massage um, why, how massage scientifically reopens your brain pathways and sends blood to your brain, which reopens your pathways. That's stuff that my mom's, um, studying in her, her PhD program. So we, we want to give, um, the documentary to, to start a conversation and a narrative and, and change the narrative for brain injury recovery. Um, so there's that. And we also have started doing private screenings. And so we'd like to continue growing that. So the private screening is like showing the docu short documentary and then also having a panel or a keynote to discuss it. Like actually uh, this September, this is August right now, we're having the interview. And in September, I'm going to the Brain Injury Association of America's annual conference. And I'm going to screen the documentary and then I'm going to talk, talk about it. And awesome. so go more in depth. And so... 
we have the private screenings and for those we're we're hoping to we, we have some already set up and we're we're hoping to grow them so if you listen to this and you're interested in bringing me to your location to screen the film and then give a discussion and, and we can tailor it to whether it's first responders that you're trying to kind of motivate them and and convince them that they are saving lives because like you mentioned they don't see the results and so sometimes it's so powerful for their performance to actually like see in flesh what they can do so then when they're feeling a little bit tired it can kind of help the, kick them in the butt and be like wait this is why I do what I do and this is where it can go um so we have the private screenings and then also my little sister uh, Jeannie, who was at the competition. And um, like I think I mentioned, she heard the ski patrol radio crackle to life saying yeah. we need all hands on deck. And she experienced all that. She is writing a memoir in a novel format. So it seems kind of like a fiction, fiction novel where you live the experience through her. And then when she's driving to the hospital, it's like the longest two hour drive she's ever done in her life. And she keeps having these flashbacks of our childhood growing up together. And they're, they're all true childhood experiences that make you fall in love with this character, me, who's dying. And she, her sister, who's not sure if she's going to get to the hospital before her sister is dead, because that's her mindset. And then the recovery process and it's all written in her format it, it's so good it gives me the the goosebumps um but we're still in 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 talks with agency agencies and and it, publishing companies and it, it's not published yet but when it does that's going to be huge um and so that's a, another big step and then we would like to create more like um mastermind programs to kind of give people a blueprint of recovery from an educated background so like my mom kind of leads those we've had so many people call us and be like we would like advice we, we would like guidance and we've, nice. we've worked with Dr. Sakona on giving guidance and so kind of structuring that is for peer-to-peer -peer education is kind of what our nonprofit can help deliver um yeah so we, we have we have a lot of a lot of those kinds of things um that we're trying to work on with the nonprofit. And then one of the, the big things about like uh, our private screenings um, and my motivational speaking and stuff is I'm really passionate about giving a voice to like the heroes of my story. It's like one of the things I'm the most passionate about. So when you contacted me for this interview, I was so excited. Um, because you guys are all heroes. And um, so that's that, that's just something I'm so passionate about. And I'm actually part of the National Speakers Association, Mount West chapter. We had a meeting last night and um, some of the speakers are really invested in their net profit and return. And of course I need to make some net profit and pay the bills and things like that. But why I do the nonprofit work and everything that's like connected to that is because I'm so passionate about saving lives and, and giving people the opportunity and, and talking about the people who do save lives on a regular basis. And so 
just giving a light to all of that is something I'm passionate about. And my husband says it's a lifelong career. So that is beautiful. You know, it just dawned on me with you saying that, that I might have to have you back on this podcast with all the lives that you're about to save. I'm just saying. So you went from being saved to now saving lives. Well done, ma'am. Well done. I think I've said that Thank a couple of times in this episode, but I'm pretty darn excited. That's for sure. Jamie, this has been incredible. I, I'm so happy you are here. I have three more questions for you. The first one is going to be, if anybody has been through a traumatic brain injury, as bad as yours, not quite as bad as yours, what advice could you give everybody right now? My advice would be to do everything at your own personal best. And after you experience a trauma, that changes dramatically. So I was raised with the belief of do your own personal best. And I kind of associated that with like being the best and always performing at the best. And um, I, I kind of did that a lot. <laughs> and then after my brain injury, all of a sudden, my own personal best had changed dramatically. My own personal best was swallowing a glass of water which took me over a week after my feeding tube was taken off for me to take one sip of water. And my own personal best was relearning how to climb up the stairs. And at first I could only do like one stair and I had to have support. And then it grew so much and I continued to do it every day because I realized I could set attainable goals and things I could accomplish at my own personal best at that time, which was like walking upstairs to try to reach these fantasy goals. Like quite honestly, for a couple of months, the fact that I wanted to return to skiing seemed as much of a dream as some of the other things that I want to accomplish. It, it, it didn't really seem possible when I couldn't walk upstairs that I was ever going to return to skiing. But I set those attainable goals and performed at my own personal best, which allowed me to continue moving. And your own personal best, other people might not think is impressive. Like doing a double backflip and breaking boundaries as the first woman, that own personal best, everyone thinks is impressive. But your own personal best of being able to make it through a day without crying, nobody really wow. notices or pays attention to. And when that's I was deep. working on my emotional instability, that's what I had to do is make it my own personal best was making it through one day without crying. Wow. Jamie. You've done a hell of a job, girl. Freaking awesome. I I appreciate that. Uh, you know, we, I talk about it here quite a bit. And there's a lot of us that go through our own, um, you know, struggles with the, the, emergency medical side of it you know the response side of it you know people who see some tough stuff and there's it's a mind job and you've got to be mind strong and mm -hmm. you're mo crazy strong that's what you are and i love it <laughs> thank you you're welcome last two questions well because i knew you grew up in new england um wachusett mountain was a mountain that i lived on and skied on all the time does that ring a bell to you yeah, I, I've been there a few times. My nice. other sister in Connecticut, um, she was on the ski racing team for 
for high school and stuff. But for me, I was living um, in New Hampshire for the school years. So I was you mostly- up with like Loon Mountain and all those up there, Killington over in Vermont. Yep. I get it. Yep, all you, those. You don't want to come down to Little Wachusett, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> all right, last question. So you're also from New England. I know that Connecticut, Yankees and Red Sox. <laughs> well, that is a good question because <laughs> honestly, I'm not a super big fan of either, but my dad is a Yankees fan. And we were and... friends until right now, Jamie, and we're <laughs> out. <laughs> the funny thing, the funny thing about that though, so I went to some Yankee games and stuff like that is my husband is also from Connecticut. We met in Salt Lake City, Utah, my husband and I, and we are both from Connecticut and he's a Red Sox fan. He grew up a, a Red Sox fan. And so when we started dating and I introduced him to my dad, he, he's an awesome guy. And so everyone loves him. And my dad's like, well, he's, he's great. He's a good person. And he goes, I'll even be okay with you dating him. And he's a Red Sox fan. So that is the question of the rivalry that you always have to ask. Yeah. Is and because your husband is fan or are you a Yankees fan? So because your husband is a Red Sox fan, we can be friends again. I'm okay with it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I did actually a couple years ago and I've I've skied with uh Nomar Garcia Parra, who was on the Red Sox. Yeah. And he was my husband's um childhood idol. A sports idol growing up and he he's an amazing person and his wife Mia was one of my sports idols growing up so I was just blown away that I got to ski and work with them and stuff and and talk with them because they're as amazing adults beyond their sports careers and parents as they were in their sports careers but so now I'm actually like don't tell my dad this but a little bit leaning towards the Red Sox purely because of retired Nomar. <laughs> Okay, I won't tell him if you won't. <laughs> Jamie, thank you so much for coming on and just sharing the story you're and everything you're doing since your accident. This has been such a pleasure for me, a super good treat. And oh gosh, I, I can't wait to see what you and your organization and everything that you're doing, your whole family is going to do in the future. I love it. So thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on and sharing your story with me. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to have a discussion and really share how much I honestly am so grateful and thankful for people like you, first responders, who I wouldn't I I I wouldn't be here without you guys. And and I keep saying that, but I really wouldn't. And it, it just gives me the goosebumps and the shivers to think that by by telling my story, I can help inspire the listeners to understand how much of a role they do play in saving people's whole lives. Like everything I'm doing wouldn't have happened if I if I didn't live, you know? Crazy so I'm I'm so thankful that I'm on this platform and, and on your podcast. And I'm so thankful that, that people like you exist to give me the opportunity to be on this podcast. Well, thanks. I try. I just, I try to do it for 
the other guys. I try to give it to them. That's so my my job is just to create the platform. And then I just want to hear the stories because I love them. So bonus. <laughs> so, Jamie, thank you so much. I look forward to meeting you one day on the slopes. Maybe we'll meet up in Saudi Arabia and, and do like a first Saudi Arabia. here. Just saying. I'm just saying. Let's like throw a, a crazy Ivan out there and make it happen. Uh, it's yeah, been a pleasure, Jamie. Yeah, the best. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so thank you. I'll be in touch and uh, go mow crazy strong all the way. Cool? Cool. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Real Rescue Podcast. Please take a minute to like, subscribe, and hit that share button. I'm pulling chocks and taking off. But before I go, if anyone out there has a rescue story they would be willing to share, I would be humbled and honored to have you on as a guest. Or if you have any questions about rescue or anything else we talk about here, send an email to jason at therealrescue.com. That's jason at T-H-E-R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q.com. You can also check us out on our web pages, therealrescue.com, our Facebook page, and our Instagram page, at The Real Rescue. Again, a special thank you to all of you standing on the watch today. Always remember, when that SAR alarm goes off, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. Until next time, fly safe and swim hard. <laughs> <laughs>